Zdenka is uh, having a stretch for a second story game. Uh, are you satisfied with his reaction? Um, Probably, yeah, no. Just... We'll deal with that later. I'm sorry. Worried about the game. We'll talk about that stuff later. Thanks. 7.02 on a Monday. Happy Monday, everybody. Halford Bruff, Sportsnet 650. That audio you heard there. I barely heard it. Right. So the question was kind of silent. It probably wasn't picked up on the microphone properly. That was one of the San Jose reporters asking Rick Tockett post-game about the Andre Kuzmenko healthy scratch for a second game. It wasn't Kuzmenko's buddy. I don't know. Send him down to the rink. I, I don't know yeah. what the relationship yeah. the coach is. Coach about me. I'm pretty sure he's an actual. <laughs> it's not a plant. He's a he's a San Jose beat writer. So um, that was following the four three loss in San Jose on Saturday, the second consecutive game in which Kuzmenko had been made a healthy scratch. You are listening to the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. We are in hour two of the program. Halford and Bruff of the morning is brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience a Delari difference today by visiting your nearest Delari Accurate dealer today. As mentioned, we are in Hour 2 of the program. Hour 2 is brought to you by North Star Metal Recycling. Vancouver's premier metal recycler pays the highest prices on scrap metal. North Star Metal Recycling, they recycle, you get paid. Visit them at 1170 Powell Street in Vancouver. We are coming to you live from the Kintec Studio, Kintec Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintec.net. So, uh, one guy that will not be back, maybe Andre Kuzmenko will be, one guy that will not be back for his team's next game, Carolina Panthers head coach Frank Reich. He has just been fired by the organization. It's a one-and-done for Frank Reich, who was hired to lead this team with the newly minted franchise quarterback Bryce Young into the future. In his first year on the job, Reich lasted all of 11 games. Wow. They went 1-10 in 10 in those 11 games. Things reached their breaking point over the weekend on Sunday following a loss to the Tennessee Titans, in which the owner, David Tepper, was reportedly down in the locker room and when leaving the locker room, audibly dropped an F-bomb and then walked out of the facility. Shortly thereafter, Frank Reich was handing his walking papers. Uh, So this is a really interesting story. And that's hard to say about the Carolina Panthers, a wildly uninteresting franchise. But the pressure now on this team and on this young quarterback in light of what the Houston Texans are doing with C.J. Stroud. Oh, and by the way, Tank Dell, who they also drafted this year. It kind of makes that 1-10 in 10 record and the dysfunction look even worse because it's hard not to look back with a bit of regret and say, did we take the wrong guy? Right. Yeah. We had their chance to take anybody we wanted and we might have missed on Stroud because it sure looks right now that the Houston Texans, who were in a lot of ways in a similar situation to Carolina in terms of restarting, right? New quarterback, high-end pick, new coach, all that. It looks like the Houston Texans, despite their loss on a very unfortunate doink kick over the weekend to Jacksonville, looks like the Houston Texans are on their way to having franchise guys all over the place. Like the the coach, D'Amico Ryans, looks like he's going to be there for a long time. Stroud, obviously, not only is going to win Offensive Rookie of the Year, I mean, he could be in the running for MVP when this is all said and done. Now they got Tank Dell as the number one wide receiver, and then there's Carolina. What was the story of the weekend for you in the NFL? Honestly, I know a lot of people were focused on that great game between Buffalo and Philly, and rightly mm-hmm. so, but for me, it's the Denver Broncos. Yeah. That is the most improbable comeback that I think I've ever seen in season. I did not think anything could be lower 
than losing 70 to 20 <laughs> in a regular season game. But lo and behold, the Denver Broncos with Russell Wilson have ripped off five straight victories. Five straight victories, and Russ got his first rushing touchdown of the year mm-hmm. on the weekend against the uh, Cleveland Browns in another another game which was just kind of... He looks like he's got some some more legs than he has in the past. Yeah. I mean, it's still not all the way back, and I well, don't think... it's not it, going to be all the way back, but it fell pretty far. Yeah, well, I mean, it felt like he was never going to win a football game again mm-hmm. at times when they got right down to the doldrums, but I just didn't see a way out of it because the defense was gashed so thoroughly in that aforementioned game against Min- against Miami. I just looked at that team and said, there are problems all over the shop. How do you fix this many in a single season? So, like, you know, hats off to them for do- doing what they've done. It's a remarkable comeback, and now... I didn't go and check um, sports club stats this morning, but I think last night it was very neck and neck in terms of playoff odds. The Denver Broncos and the Seattle Seahawks have almost identical odds. To but again, the let's let's not let's not rewrite history here. No, no, no I'm not. I'm just saying that. But there's a lot point, of people that like when the Seahawks traded Russell Wilson. A lot of it was they didn't want to give him the contract. That he was going to need, mm-hmm. uh, and they needed. There was a divorce there that needed to happen. Oh, absolutely! Right? Like the, I will the relationship, not relitigate. I won't re-relitigate. Well, everyone that. is doing it right now, and well, I think they're stupid. But but it's because Denver was so bad last year, and the Seattle Seahawks were surprisingly good that people kind of like they reweighted the deal. They acted like the Seahawks were making this move in order to be good right away. Mm-hmm. And that really wasn't the case. You know, I know Pete Carroll and John Schneider down in Seattle were saying, like, we want to remain competitive. I don't think they expected last season to happen. I don't think they expected Geno Smith to play the way he did. And they probably didn't expect Denver. Like, Denver made that move to go win a Super Bowl last year. Yep. Right? Like, I still look at this team right now and I go, remarkable comeback. Sure. But have they come... Are they are, are they a Super Bowl contender? God, I don't I don't know about they're that. They're on the fringes. Right? They're on the fringes of the playoffs. I think if you want to, I, I think. And again, I don't like heaping praise on anything involving Russell Wilson at this point. But I think that that entire organization delivers, deserves a lot of credit for being able to turn it around. Because absolutely, when they were at one absolutely. and five, when they were at one and five, there was legitimate talk about are you going to release Russell Wilson and how much longer is Sean Payton going to just stand to watch us? Because he looked like as frustrated a guy as anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, I also want to point out that. Um, the Denver Broncos and Sean Payton was asked about this. They have now uh, recorded not one, but two scoregamis this season. For those that don't know what that is, this is real NFL nerd stuff. Anytime that there's a unique final score in NFL history, there's a guy out there dedicated to tracking all of it and then announcing it. So back in week three, when the Dolphins <laughs> came in and beat um, Denver 70 to 20. Right. That had obviously never happened. First time before. it had ever happened yeah. in NFL history. On the weekend, another super weird score. The Broncos beat the Browns 29 to 12. Yeah. Which is also the first time ever in NFL history that that score was recorded. So Sean Payton, it was hilarious. He got asked about this. In the aftermath of the game, Sean Payton had no idea what the reporter was talking about. He's like, a score of what? Score a gummy? And he's like, yeah. He's like, congratulations. You're the first team to do two in one year. 
maybe back in the olden days it was a little different. But And then Peyton's like, well, so you're telling me that no team had ever won a game 29 to 12 before. And the reporter said, that's right. And then there was a moment of pause. He's like, also 70 to 20. (laughs) (laughs) And Peyton, he had a good chuckle on that one. He laughed. So it was a pretty good delivery on that one. Uh, Here's another question for you. Are the LA Rams, by the end of the season, going to catch the Seahawks? Yes. The Rams are now five and six. The Seahawks are six and five. And we all know the daunting schedule that still awaits the Seattle Seahawks over the next little while. The Rams uh, took care of Arizona in a big way. What are the Cardinals going to do with Kyler Murray? By the way, like, are they just stuck with him? I I like think- what, are, what what are the here, here here's a, here's a better question. What are the Cardinals going to do? Period. <laughs> yeah. It is a good question um, because they are kind of in a spot where record wise. They're down there with the Carolina Panthers. They are in contention to have possibly the top pick in the NFL draft in the spring. And you would say, "Mm, time to start anew if you're that bad. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't have anything worth keeping. But they just made this long-term commitment to Kyler Murray. And they're going to have to make a decision real quick. Because you can't go into a draft with that pick and leave everyone's future up in the air. You almost need to signal like we're either going to trade this pick and get a bounty of picks in return, not unlike what Chicago did, and you know try and work things around Kyler Murray again, or we're just going to start from scratch and try and get in the Caleb Williams sweepstakes. I got right? caught uh, watching another Steelers game. And I was laughing after the game because I saw a headline that said, Steelers offense finally wakes yeah, up. And I was I like, know. they scored 16 points. They did. Yardage-wise, yes. They did. They put up over 400 yards. Uh, and Kenny Pickett actually threw for, I think, almost 300 yards, which is a hell of an accomplishment for them. They beat the Bengals 16-10. to 10. The Steelers and the Browns, to me, are pretty similar. You're like, good teams... Who's going to be their quarterback, though? Yeah. Um, the funny thing is, is that the Browns have a plus 30-point differential and the Pittsburgh Steelers have a minus 23, and they got the same identical records. Yeah. Um, well, the Ravens are the class of that division, right? Yeah. And, the, and the, I mean, all four teams are good teams. Unfortunately for the Bengals, they don't have their quarterback, Joe Burrow, for the rest of the season. So you kind of count them out now. Since he's done. Jake Browning, uh, not the answer. No. Not uh, quarterback gonna, not for Cincinnati. I watched Jake Browning as a Husky, and I was pretty sure when I watched him as a Husky that he wasn't going to be a great NFL quarterback because um, he wasn't a great college quarterback. Do you want? Speaking of college football, do you want to talk about your beloved UW Huskies? Because I know you were watching that game with great enthusiasm. That was probably the weekend. biggest game of the weekend for me in terms of yelling at the TV. Uh, the Huskies uh, against Washington State made it look very difficult. And uh, a dog, here's here's a joke for you. I'm sure you'll uh, you'll appreciate this. Uh, Michael Penix had a hard time out there. <laughs> Michael Penix, Phoenix had a, a Phoenix. See, when you do it like that, Phoenix kind of ruins it. And and also, I said hard. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah hard yeah. time. He did not look good, but the Huskies uh, found a way. Including like an incredible call by the coach at fourth and one, where they ran like a fake end around. I guess you would call it. Uh, they got uh, some help from the officials on a kind of a dicey uh, roughing the passer call, and ultimately they won it on over uh, the Washington State Cougars by a field goal. Mm-hmm. Here's the funny thing: now the Huskies finished the season twelve and zero. In a very good Pac-12. Okay. Okay? Yep. Including a win over Oregon. Now they play Oregon in the Pac-12 title game, 
and they are nine and a half point underdogs mm. against the Oregon Ducks. And I don't disagree with the line because Michael Penix and overall the offense of the Huskies has been really pretty average in the second half of the season. And it's hard to beat teams, you know, good teams like Oregon twice in a season. And here's the thing. The Huskies, there's a very good chance that they're going to go 12-0 and in the regular season. They're going to lose the title game to the Ducks, and they're not going to go to the college football playoff. Right. And I don't know... I don't know if the Ducks will go then. It could be nobody out of the Pac-12 goes to the college football playoffs. Yeah, so um, it is interesting. I think a lot of people, if they don't follow college football all that closely, they'll be like, how is this possible? Because, I mean, the important thing to note here is that it's also a neutral site game. Like, it's not like they're a nine-point or nine-and-a-half-point favorite because the game is in Oregon. It's being played at uh, Allegiant Stadium in Vegas, if I'm not mistaken, the Pac-12 yeah. title game. So, so after all that hard work, Penix's team just might get shafted. All right, we're, we're glad you're here. That was really good, by the way. That was really, really. Is he good. just a bit cocky right now? Like, what's going on with the guy? <laughs> well really done, good. really good. You've been working going? on that. <laughs> really, really good. I, I, actually, I, have, yeah, I, I have several more. <laughs> yeah. He really wasn't very good, though. Like that was concerning. He was sailing the ball out there. I was like, "How windy is it at Husky Stadium right now?" He nearly threw a couple interceptions on that game-winning drive. Uh, so we'll put the pin in the uh, football talk for a moment here because we've got Nick Shook coming up at 7.30. I also want to ask him about these remarks from Tom Brady who said that there was a lot of mediocrity in the NFL and then uh, the NFL promptly went out. And uh, outside of that Bills game, it was a pretty mediocre weekend. And it stretched over Thursday, Friday, and Sunday. There was Did you see Alex Smith kind of, yeah. kind of fight back with his words to Tom Brady? And Brady would be like, you were mediocre. So we don't have the audio in front of us. But former NFL quarterback... Alex Smith, you'll remember him from his time with the San Francisco 49ers and the Washington. What were it? Was it the Washington football team when he was there? Because they had name changes in Washington. I don't know if you're aware of this or not. Anyway, he was on a panel on the weekend and he was sitting with he was sitting with Teddy Bruschi and Rex Ryan. And these Tom Brady remarks that we'll talk about with Nick Shook. Tom Brady basically said, I don't like the current state of the NFL. I don't think that the coaching is good enough. I don't think that the schemes are good enough. And I think that the rule changes have ruined the game. It's too mediocre. A lot of mediocrity in the NFL. Alex Smith uh, very astutely pointed out a few things on Sunday while on the panel sitting next to Teddy Bruschi and Rex Ryan. That's important for a moment here. He said, one, Tom Brady... Uh, you just stopped playing football like a year ago. So all of this mediocrity in the current state of the NFL, you were actively employed during that. Well, the league fell apart right after Tom Brady left it. And then he said, Tom Brady, and he looked at Teddy Bruschi, and he's like, this is meant as no disrespect to your New England teams, Teddy, but while you guys were on your reign of terror in the NFL, your division was probably the worst in NFL history. The AFC East was god-awful. Yeah, you should be an expert in mediocrity because you faced it six times a year. The, the Bills were awful. The Dolphins were awful. And the Jets were awful. And I mentioned who Alex Smith was sitting by. Well, it was the former head coach of the Jets during those years, Rex Ryan. <laughs> and he was in his chair, like, catching strays. He's like, ah! He's like, I wasn't that bad. We went to a couple AFC title games and everything. So it was a very interesting reply from Alex Smith. Uh, we'll, ask, we'll talk to Nick Shook about that later on. But I know lots of you are tuning in this morning because this is Sportsnet 650. This is your home of the Canucks. Yes, we'll get back to some Canucks talk right now and some NHL talk as well. If you missed it over the weekend, it was not a great Saturday for the Canucks after a very good Friday. Uh, 
the win over Seattle, which unfortunately, schedule-wise, especially with this show, anytime there's a back-to-back over the weekend, the first game, win or lose, always gets overshadowed because it's the most recent game that's in everyone's minds. And Mm -hmm. in this particular instance, what happened in San Jose really did undo a lot of the good vibes from that very nice third period in Seattle on Friday. Well, Tuckett even said it afterwards. He said, you wasted the Seattle effort. I was like, yeah, I think I think you still get the two points for that win, Rick. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I'm with you on that. Like, I think that I appreciate what he's saying. And he wants to keep the bar high. And he doesn't want to let any of these excuses or tiredness or any of that stuff creep in. Look, the schedule is the schedule. Canucks have played, if I'm not mistaken... 10 games in their last 17 nights in eight different cities. So it the wear and tear of that is real. Including right? some back-to-backs. And Friday, Saturday was a back-to-back. That being said... It's had three back-to-backs in the last couple of weeks. The Canucks are one of four teams to lose to the San Jose Sharks this year. And the San Jose Sharks have played a lot of different teams. Right? They're just at about the 20-game mark like everyone else. And they are... That's just a really bad hockey team. I don't know how else to put it. Mm-hmm. I know that they tried hard. I heard all the platitudes afterwards. Like, you got to give the Sharks credit for showing up and trying hard, which for them is a step in the right direction. Well, they did block a lot of shots. And they blocked some shots. Yeah. But when everyone else, and quite literally everyone else in the NHL is feasting on those kinds mm-hmm. of teams, that I think that's why Tockett said what he said. Well, earlier in the show, I pointed out two pretty bad defensive um, situations for the Canucks that resulted in San Jose goals. Fabian Zetterland, nobody watching this guy. Mm. Everyone on the ice playing for the Vancouver Canucks, puck watching. Zetterland just drifts into the slot for a wide-open one-timer. And then the third goal by San Jose was Michael Granlund out there. And I know he, he's he's not a bad player. He's actually a pretty, pretty good player. Mm-hmm. But him going coast-to-coast... Like the Canucks weren't moving their feet, and everyone will point uh, to Horonic for not doing a very good job on the one-on-one, and he didn't do a very good job on the one-on-one. But the Canucks forwards out there were not moving their feet. They just they just let them waltz through the neutral zone and mm-hmm. into the zone, and you know that that makes it difficult for a defenseman to play that. And Horonic, yes, he should have played it better. But when any player in the NHL is coming at you full speed, that's a tough play to make. So overall, I think what Rick Tockett was probably saying when he said you got to respect your opponents is that the Canucks didn't respect the Sharks. They were like, yeah, we've seen these guys already. Yeah, We can beat these guys easily. We can even beat them when we don't have our A game because the second time the Canucks beat the Sharks, they didn't have their A game. They didn't play particularly well, but they finally, well, not finally, it was only three games, but the third game... You know, it caught up to them. Just bad habits. And Rick Tockett is always talking about your, your your staples, like the staples of your diet. They weren't there for the Canucks, and it cost them. Uh, so when we talk about Rick Tockett, when we have spoken about Rick Tockett this year, I think the reviews have almost been universally glowing and positive. Everyone likes the job that he's done, and that's not just locally. I think that goes on a national level as well. He's probably in contention, if not the leading guy, for the Jack Adams right now. That said, I do want to reflect what a lot of the listeners are texting in, and and I've seen pundits write about it as well. Right? I think IMAC wrote about it for sports that it is the Kuzmenko decision to extend that healthy scratch to two games. You can, Look, I we talked about this off the top, and you kind of chuckled, and rightly so, when I said, you know, Kuzmenko's in on Saturday. Maybe things are different. Kuzmenko's not going to single-handedly win you a game. But I think there's an argument to be made that when you're a tired team and you're on the second 
of a back-to-back, and you've traveled overnight from Seattle to San Jose, and you could use some freshness. And when you're putting an extra attacker on at the end, and it's Sam Lafferty, and when Teddy Bluger is on your second power play unit, at the very least, very least, there's a case to be made that Kuzmenko could have been back in on Saturday. You know what I think the toughest part for Tockett was, though, in his defense? That they won. Um, No. The game in Seattle, what was everyone saying? It was the bottom six sure. that got it done, for sure, right? For sure, for sure. So who are you going to take out? It's a good question. It does seem unfair that after a win in which a lot of bottom six guys that were candidates to be scratched kind of either scored or did something of significance. Right. Who do you take out? Like you don't want you don't want to punish. Like that's how you lose a room. By the way, if you're a head coach, there's lots of way to lose a room. But if you don't um, appreciate what your foot soldiers do for you, totally. Then that's it. a way to lose the room, right? So who, so who, who were you going to take out after that Seattle game? That was that was a tough situation for Talkett, but I don't disagree. Like watching the game, I was like, you know, especially when they were down, yep, uh, in the third period, it's like I was, I wish Kuzmenko was out there. So listen, no, today's today's practice at Rogers Arena. Uh, I think it's going to be really interesting to see what the lines are. Well, can because, I just jump because in? Because I, I wonder if Talkett might just do like a big line shuffle. Uh, can I jump in for a sec here? You know who would have been a candidate? No. You know who would have been a candidate to get dropped after the win against Seattle? I hate saying it, and it's uh, very disappointing, but it's a real one. PDG. Phil DiGiuseppe could have been dropped out of that lineup because he barely Probably, yeah. he barely played. <laughs> I thought you said PD. <laughs> no, 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 no. P- PDG. PDG. <laughs> Phil DiGiuseppe, the guy we once called. Get ready to hit the found, hot take horn. Found money, Phil. <laughs> Drop Elias Pete. Oh, that's too obvious. Uh, Into P- Pedersen. He's down to, what is it, 12 minutes, 13 minutes of ice time. So he's he's got bottom six minutes. He's not really producing. He's probably doing all the little things and details that everyone has grown to love. Mm-hmm. But you could have made an argument there that of all the bottom six guys, and look, you're not going to drop Nils Oman after he had two assists against the Kraken. You're not going to drop Bluger after he scores. Hoaglander, well, you're Joshua. Not gonna blo- you're not going to drop any of these centers. No. Bovillier, right? maybe. Until two maybe Beauvillier. Maybe Beauvillier. Maybe I mean, He hasn't been awful, but... He- he has trouble finishing. He has problems getting the puck in the net. Right. I mean, well, him and Garland, their their finishing rates are a problem for this team right yeah. now. Like who uh, among the wingers? Among the wingers on this team, besides Brock Besser, who has obviously been terrific at finishing this season, although he probably should have more goals considering the chances he's had. Yeah. But overall, he's been unbelievable. He's got the most goals in the NHL. Who's a great finisher on the Canucks right now on the wings? Oh, nobody. <laughs> Nobody. Yeah. It was Kuzmenko last year, and Kuzmenko's way off. Mm-hmm. Now I think, like I, I, I wonder, I wonder. I, I this is why I'm curious about Pew Suter because I think if Pew Suter comes back in the lineup, it gives Rick Tockett the option to reunite the lotto line, and I think that might be an idea right now. Oh, it's percolating for sure. If you want to get the sort of choke chain, break glass in case of emergency, quick fire starter for Petey. It's get the lotto line back together. The, the issue there is what becomes of <laughs> the rest of your life. Like, what does your second line become if you put the lotto line back together? Because it gets real thin, right? I mean, who becomes... Well, it's better to have one line going than in your top six. You remember at the beginning of the season how good we were feeling about the top two lines? We're not feeling good about... 
frankly, at five on five, at five on five, we're not feeling good about any of those lines. They did right score now. eight goals over the two games in San Jose. And how Seattle. many were on the power play? How many were at five on five? Not many. Um, not many. How many? Yeah, how many of the goals? None in San Jose because well, the, San Jose they were power play merchants. A well, bit, power the two power play goals and then six on five was their third goal. So they didn't have any five on five goals against the San Jose Sharks. So the Canucks will practice today at Rogers Arena. And um, I'll be curious to see what Rick Tockett has to say about any potential injury updates, if there's going to be a Pew Suter injury update, but also what the lines look like as they prepare for the Anaheim Ducks on Tuesday night uh, at Rogers Arena. Nick Shook is going to join us next. Talk a little NFL on the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. The most opinionated Canucks show out there. Canucks Talk with Jamie Dodd and Thomas Drans. Be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Monday. Happy Monday, everybody. Halford Brown, Sportsnet 650. Before we get to Nick Shook, I have a listening exercise for all of you in listener land out there. The listening exercise is listen. Just listen to the show. Specifically, the words we say. All of them. Because they all add up to a singular point that we try to make from time to time. Why are you chastising the listeners again? Brendan in Nanaimo. Oh, yeah. Brendan texted in, who's finishing on the wings this season for the Canucks? He's like, duh, Brock Besser. I'm like, Brendan, the conversation was outside of Besser this year, who's been a real good finisher on the wing? You can't answer with Brock Besser when Brock Besser was baked into the equation of the question. And this happens countless times <laughs> where people just, they either hear snippets of something or they don't get the full context of what we're saying. We actually made a big deal of saying like, and Brock Besser is sure finished. Like he's leading the NHL in goals. That's great. But who else? What about Brock Besser? Like, I think I said him. And Five Brendan and Imo, he was like, uh, does Brock Besser not play for the team? And they, everyone wants to come with the receipts and we're going to dunk on the stupid Halford and the stupid Bruff and all that stuff. All I'm saying is. That's fine. That's part of the show. If you want to hear the show in its entirety, I recommend going back before you text in with your gotcha texts and that guy texts, download the podcast, Apple, Google, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcast. Not only do we give you the entirety of the Halford and Bruff show, we break it down into three digestible hours of content, right, A-Dog? What was that? I wasn't paying attention to. Hours one, two, and three. From the very beginning? Hours one, two, and three of the podcast. Yeah. Each one is its own individual podcast. It's true. Mm -hmm. Listeners can subscribe, and they'll just arrive at your doorstep, like a newspaper back in the day. We haven't had any funny reviews of the podcast in a while. That's a good point. Yeah. Go to wherever you can leave a review. The last one, someone called me a Karen. (laughs) Which is both accurate and kind of funny. But um, I would like to speak to the manager. (laughs) (laughs) I am not a Karen. That's right. 
Bruff is like the final boss of Karen's. It's like the one that you eventually ascend to. Karen. That's right. He sits there. Mega Karen. That's right. He's filing He's filing complaints online. Let me speak to your manager. Getting one of those John and Kate plus eight haircuts. Okay. Uh, we got a lot to get into on the show. Nick Shook, very patiently waiting on. No, he's here. not. He's not here yet. He's not? No. So I got to keep rambling. You got to keep rambling. On and on and on. Halford and Bruff in the morning is brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today by visiting your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. We are in hour two of the program. Nick Shook, hopefully from NFL.com, will be joining us in just a minute. Hour two is brought to you by North Star Metal Recycling. Vancouver's premier metal recycler pays the highest prices on scrap metal. North Star Metal Recycling, they recycle, you get paid. Visit them at 1170 Powell Street in Vancouver. So let's read a few texts into the Dunbar Lumber text line while we're waiting uh, to chat with Nick. Um, Austin and Langley, sorry, Scott had an early, uh, what we learned and he said, what we learned while the loss to San Jose on Saturday was disappointing. I like to look at the fact that it took until November 25th for a Canucks loss to truly make me mad. And if you would have told me that in September, I wouldn't have believed you. The expectations for the Canucks have been raised and that's good. That's what we hoped. We hoped we wouldn't be in this endless purgatory of bad starts and then looking to the trade deadline five months before the trade deadline. Who can they sell? What should they do? Should they blow it up? Those conversations got real tiring. But right now, we're holding the Canucks to a higher standard. Because right now, isn't everyone's expectation like they're going to make the playoffs? Like for me, looking at the trade deadline is not so much about selling. It's maybe addressing some shortcomings. Maybe you add some depth on defense. Maybe you add a scoring winger up front. I'm looking at this lineup differently now. I'm looking at this lineup like I care about the games coming up and I want them to produce. Do you remember when we used to, when the Canucks were good a long time ago, we'd pick apart like the littlest stuff, like they're not getting enough from the fourth line. Yeah. You know, like is Victor Oreskovich the answer, right? Like Spoiler, he was not. He was not. But, you know, this is, this is how we're looking at the Canucks differently. It's more small picture stuff. Well, I'm, as opposed I, to the big picture, is this team even heading in close to the right direction? Now, that question is still out there for the record, but it's lingering right now, right? Like, it, it, the Canucks would have to really collapse for us to go back to that conversation. So we're looking at things like, all right, who's going to score in the top six? You need more than one scoring winger. Now, someone suggested put Hoaglander into the top six. And... I was hesitant on that suggestion maybe a few days ago, but I have more time for it now. I wanted – here's what I want from Hoaglander. I want him to just have a consistent role and do it well, right? Isn't that what we want from the young players, to have this consistency? And I think if these young players – like Yannick Hansen, when he came into the NHL, it wasn't like – as soon as he started playing well, it was like bump him into the top six, mm. right? He played that bottom six – role for a long time, and then eventually, when the opportunity arose, you know, Burroughs wasn't there anymore, he got some time with the Sedins. Now, temporarily, I might have some time for the Hoaglander into the top six. I also think Hoaglander or Hansen are a little bit different. Like, Hoaglander has shown at a younger age more scoring potential and more offensive talent than Yannick Hansen did a little at more this pedigree age. There, yeah. A little more pedigree, right? So, maybe, but... The thing for Hoaglander is, like, can we not all agree 
that having him down in the AHL and not coming up and down and up and down and up and down last season was a good thing for him, right? Mm -hmm. You keep him in a role and you just say, hey, you don't get a promotion as soon as you do that role well three or four times. You have to do it for a long time. And I guess that's where my hesitancy Mm. to immediately bump Hoaglander up has been. Like, don't just, like, give a promotion right away. Make a guy do a role for a while and do it well, and then maybe you give that promotion. But I think the Canucks are in a position right now where they might need to temporarily do something like that. But the targets for me, and I know it's not the most popular guys to talk about, like... Garland and Beauvillier. Yeah. Like, those are the veterans who are getting paid good money who are not producing. Yeah. They need to score. Yeah. I mean, they need to do, I mean, they don't need to do it quite like the way Brock Besser is doing. I think it's unrealistic to ask all three of them to be tied atop the NHL scoring leaderboard. But um, when we talked about the, the roster inefficiencies and where they were sort of overextended coming into the season, it was pretty obvious. There was too many guys making too much money on the wings. And part of it is, you know, if Beauvillier and Garland were going to get a more elevated role, it would probably be with another organization because they weren't going to claw their way into a top six role on this roster. And that's played out in real time. Their shot totals are fine, but their minutes per game is low. Now, it's funny that you mention you know, the, the lens in which we're analyzing this team this year, because for me, and I think you've noticed this since day one, it's almost been playoffs and it's been like watching the out of town scoreboard yeah, yeah. and seeing what teams are off to a slow start. So I'm not quite at the, let's do the 2011 redux where we're talking about a team that's got Stanley cup aspirations and we're looking to fill out these holes in the lineup. For me, it's about, one, have they padded enough of a good start to get into the postseason? Then two, which teams are falling out? I mean, I'm checking the standings on a near-daily basis and the out-of-town scoreboard. Yeah, we hope Edmonton doesn't mount an amazing comeback. I hope Minnesota continues to stink, right? Well, like I, I hope Calgary doesn't figure it out. Yeah. Uh, so we got Nick on the line now. Okay, we're going to get back into the NFL talk now with Nick Shook from NFL.com here on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Morning, Nick. How are you? I'm good, guys. How are you? Uh, we're good. Thanks for taking the time to do this. We really appreciate it. Uh, I'm going to throw you right on the spot to begin, and I want to go back to the remarks that Tom Brady made last week when he essentially said that there's, quote-unquote, a lot of mediocrity in today's NFL and that he doesn't see the excellence that he saw during his playing days. Now, I know that Alex Smith's remarks kind of went viral over the weekend, and we talked about that, but I've also seen a lot of the NFL product this year, and I'm not going to lie. Some of it has kind of been mediocre. Um, right off the hop, and I know I'm throwing you right into this, but I wanted to get your thoughts because I know you follow the league as a singular entity. Do you agree with any of Brady's assessment from last week? Um, I think the game has changed a little bit. Um, I also think that uh, it, it's tough because Tom kind of comes off as, you know, an old guy shouting at a cloud, you know, <laughs> back in my day and all that stuff. Um, the game has undoubtedly changed since he started. You cannot hit players the same way that you could even 10 years ago. Um, there's a much more um, intense focus on player safety for the better, but it does change the way that the game looks. Roughing the passer, as we have all discussed, uh, at nauseum has also changed as well. But he wasn't really talking about that. He was talking about you know, the, uh, the ability of players to execute discipline, that, that sort of thing. And how um, you know he he just didn't believe that the quality was this high, almost as if guys are not practicing as hard or 
things just aren't as good. Well, he has a bit of a point because you cannot practice as much as you can you could when he was playing. Uh, you know, especially when he came into the league. You know, these guys don't do two a days anymore. They don't do stuff like, you know, uh, the the intense padded practices throughout the summer. They have limits all this on all this. They've collectively bargained all of this, and I think that you see that early in the season when you know teams struggle out of the gate and they're just not as sharp against other teams because. Look, the the margin for error in this league is is increasingly slimmer and slimmer with every you know year, five years, ten years, whatever it is, uh, as as the talent pool just only gets better over time. So I don't think that it's that the the, the players aren't good, or aren't good enough, or that they're getting worse over time. I think it's a lack of practice time that manifests early in the season. Sometimes will bleed over and get in the way of uh, you know teams ending up hitting their potential. But it, it is funny because when I watched it, I was like. All right, Tom. You've been you've been retired for less than a full year. Uh, you have a stake in an NFL team, and you're already doing the back in my day thing. But I mean, I guess he earned it, considering you know how old he was when he retired. Um, I now want to turn our attention to, and I can't believe we're doing this at this stage of the season. But yes, the potentially playoff bound Denver Broncos. How shocked are you at this turnaround where they went from one and five to six and five, and now are in the thick of that AFC playoff chase? Um, I. So there was there was a period where I was like, nah, that's not going to last. Like, cool, you beat the Chiefs. All right, nice. Mahomes was sick, whatever, because um, I just didn't believe in them. And then it was probably the last couple weeks, including yesterday, uh, seeing them fight to the finish against the Vikings uh, to come back and win that game was the first time where I was like, okay, this team is actually – they believe in themselves. Like, they've, they've strung together a few wins here where I sit back and think, all right, they're not this, like, you know – woeful team that nobody's going to, you know, uh, count on anymore or believe in. They're just going to cast them off and everything. They, they figured out, Oh wait, we can win. We can be a pretty good, uh, football team. And then yesterday they went out and quite frankly, they, they really, uh, they, they, they bullied the Browns a little bit physically. They out physical them. Um, they won at the point of attack on both sides of the ball for most of the game. The Browns were able to run the ball pretty well. Kevin's fancy went away from that, but, um, it, uh, it's probably these last three games where I really believe in the Broncos. You know, the, the way they got over the Bills, which they were not – that was not a pretty game. I don't know if they necessarily earned it. They they actually did not through on a number of uh, scoring opportunities, but they earned it and that they finished on the right end of the scoreboard of that game. These last two games, I'm looking at them now and I'm thinking, look, they're getting their swagger. Like, they're getting their, their attitude back that they haven't had in that city in, in almost a decade since they last won a Super Bowl. And uh, they're, they're hitting their stride at the perfect time. And if you look at their schedule, it's setting up for – yeah, they might be in the playoffs by the end of the season. So, uh, of uh, the continent, it would be a nightmare scenario if the Denver Broncos actually were Super Bowl contenders because we already made fun of them for completely blowing this trade last season. Um, we thought that was over and, and done with, that the Seahawks had won the trade and we could move on. Ah, I sense the nervousness in your voice now. <laughs> yes. Um, it is... Uh, I get that. I understand that. And I I felt as if the Seahawks had won the trade too, but Russell's kind of figured it out. You know, he statistically, if you skate his numbers on a week-to-week basis, you're going to think, well, he's not doing anything special. But if you watch the tape and you watch these games every week, you're like, Russell is a massive part of why they're winning football games. He is. He's not what he was at his peak in Seattle, but he's getting close. And he's closer than he's been really in the last few years. Not just last year, but maybe the year or two prior as well. Uh, it, it's he's extending plays, but he's you know he's not as athletic as he was early in his career. But 
He's still extending plays and then finding guys open. He made the Browns pay so many times yesterday for that. Uh, you know, rolling out right, throwing to green grass across the field to get a key third down, you know, stepping up in the pocket. I was of the belief that the Browns pass rush was strong enough um, that, that they'd be able to get home. And, and because it feels like Russell hangs in the ball a little bit too long, I was wrong. Uh, he, he was able to get it out at just the right time. And that's how he's been for most of this year. So I don't, like, if you look at their stats, it's still a lot of Cortland Sutton and some Marvin Mims and Jerry Judy's still like hit or miss. So they have to stay healthy. They really have to stay healthy to be able to, you know, and obviously that's the case for everybody, but especially for them, they just don't have a lot of room for injuries to happen. So it feels like eventually they're going to lose the game. And it's going to kind of slow down, but um, I'm not going to consider it the Super Bowl, but I would not be surprised if they make the playoffs. Um, what more can be said about Jalen Hurts and his ability to uh, win games where the Eagles are losing by quite a fair margin? Well, I don't think he'll ever be appreciated for it. And I know that because every time I put him high up in the QB index, I get <laughs> roasted for it online. And and it's fine because everyone, well, look at his stats. Well, he turns the ball over, you know, this and that. Nothing's impressive, but he, he's winning games. The guy is a winner. His, I think I saw Will Black and tweeted, I think he tweeted like a month or so ago and then retweeted last week that Jalen Hurts' superpower was his, um, his mental toughness. Yeah. His ability to you know, fight through all adversity and find a way to win. I mean, they did it again last night. There was, there was like three instances in that game, especially even in overtime where I'm like, they're going to lose this game. Like this is over, uh, you know, and then, uh, Jake Elliott hits that 59 yard field goal, but even in overtime, I'm like, nah, they're not going to get this. They, they, they convert the fourth down. You know, next thing you know, Jalen Hurts is scrambling in for a 12 yard touchdown run. And they win the game. Same situation the week prior, you know, uh, they haven't thrown the ball well in the rain all night in Kansas city leads a touchdown drive, huge pass to Devonte <laughs> Smith to set up the touchdown it's it's intangibles. I think we hear that all the time. And when you're drafting guys and, and you're spending months watching people on TV talk about the next quarterback class and everything, they like to hype up this guy's skill and that guy's skill. But and, and you'll hear the word intangibles come across, but it's hard to quantify. And I think that we found a pretty good measuring stick in, in the way Jalen Hurts plays is that, you know, this is, um, this is a guy who's probably still not even 100% healthy when it comes to that knee. Uh, he doesn't look quite as fast as he did last year. But he looked pretty darn fast on that uh, scramble for a touchdown last night. So um, I, I think that, you know, it's been a weird year for MVP voting and everything like that. And he's probably not going to get the love that he's, he deserves unless they continue to win games. But you want to talk about somebody who's incredibly valuable to a team, it's Jalen Hurts, even if the numbers don't show it. Yeah, the word intangibles is almost... It almost comes with like a, a negative connotation now because it sounds like something that like some old sports dinosaur would say, like, oh, you can't, you can't, you know, like you got to talk about his intangibles. And, uh, you know, if you're more of the analytics bent, you're like, yeah, but you can't quantify that. So how do you, I mean, does a lot of this just come down to scouting and asking a lot of questions about the player's character? How do you identify the right intangibles for a player? Yeah, I think that that actually helps and goes a long way. This is why when you see some of the GMs that find success in the NFL, it's guys who've been around for a long time, or they've been in a number of different stops as something less than a GM before becoming a GM because they have a network that they can rely on. Um, I mean, and Howie Rosen really fits the bill there. I mean, the guy was exiled by Chip Kelly. <laughs> he was put on the other side of the building and then came back and, you know, pretty quickly turned, you know, a, a roster that was not in a great spot into a Super Bowl winner and another roster that was back in the Super Bowl a few years after they'd won it. So uh, with a lot of changes on it, this is a guy who is very well-versed. He's probably the best champion in football. And I think that that's exactly what you need is you need to be able to call somebody 
and yeah. ask them on honestly, without any you know bias or attempt to inflate a guy's draft value. Look, am I when I'm picking this guy? You know what what do I expect? What do I need to expect from this kid? Who is he as a person? Who is he as a teammate? That sort of thing. Uh, because I think that goes a long way. I think the same thing could be said about C.J. Stroud. Uh, you know, this is a guy whose teammates loved, loved in Columbus. I went to the pro day last year thinking, all right, I'm going to see a diva quarterback. Got the exact opposite. He's right next to everybody else, right up in front, cheering on somebody bench and trying to get that last rep during their workout. And and uh, one of the guys through and through had teammates come down when they didn't need to be there to run routes for him just to help Marvin Harrison Jr. ran routes for him during his pro day last year because of because they love him. I mean, they, mm. These are the types of things that you only find out if you get there, boots on the ground in person, which Jalen Hurts is at Bama and at Oklahoma for you to get to see that, or you call their coach or you call somebody that's close to the program who knows him well outside of an agent and say, what can I expect from this kid? Who is he? And that's how you identify you know, leadership that you want at the position. Where does that loss to the Eagles leave the Bills? Because they've got a bye week now. They're six and six, and when they come back, they got to go to KC to play the Chiefs, and then they host Dallas. Then they go to LA to play the Chargers. Uh, then they host New England, who they've already lost to this season, and then they finish the season in Miami. I guess there's a very good chance that the Bills are not going to make the playoffs this season. Yep, everybody can uh, start to mentally prepare because these next two games are about as tough of a matchup, a uh, pair of matchups as you can get for any team. I mean. You could be undefeated, and I'd look at Kansas City and Dallas and think, ooh. I mean, I know Philly just went through that gauntlet, but the Bills are not the Eagles, even though they pushed them to overtime last night. Uh, well, yesterday afternoon going into the night. It gets so dark now you can't even tell. Uh, and uh, I, I think that, you know, this is going to be a situation in which they could win. I don't know, man. I look at this on paper. I'm thinking they win maybe two of these. I can't see them beating Kansas City, Dallas, and Miami. It, it just And especially if you lose against Kansas City and Dallas. Luckily, you get a bye week. So you get an extra time to prepare, but Kansas City's defense, I think, doesn't get the credit it deserves. And um, I don't think we're going to get the shootout people expect in that game. But this is what happens when you mess around early in the season. I mean, if we look back at their schedule, we're going to think, oh, they had a pretty tough schedule. Uh, they shouldn't have lost New England. But Cincinnati, that was, you know, with Joe Burrow, uh, Denver ends up being tough. The, uh, you know, you look at the Jaguars and where they are atop the AFC South. It was a tough schedule. Mm-hmm. Games that they won, they should have won, and they only lost about one or two games that they should have won. So uh, that is no excuse for what has happened to this team. Though this team, you deal with changes as offensive coordinator, you turn the ball over way too much. You should not have lost to Denver if you actually protect the football. And now, you know, you only have your, yourselves to blame. You know, you can't even point to an injury or two. I mean, well, actually, you can. You can point to Matt Milano. You can point to Tre'Davious White. Uh, losing both of those guys hurt your defense, but it's not like you know the Bengals are going to point at Joe Burrow and say, "Well, we lost our quarterback. What do you expect?" They they took a little bit too long to figure out what they wanted to you know how they wanted to play football or how they want to straighten it out. And lose, losses like yesterday are really going to hurt. I, it, we we've been talking about the schedule thing since they lost to Denver, and I don't think I don't know. I, I don't like to make any definitive statements. Don't speak in absolutes. But I think it's going to be really tough the Buffalo Bills to make the playoffs. Nick, I know we started late. I know we're up against it for time. My producer's yelling that we got to go to break, but I would be remiss in my duties if I didn't ask you about an NFL coach getting fired during a hit on the same day. Real quick, quick thoughts, quick thoughts on what happened to Frank Reich in Carolina out after a 1-10 start to the season. I, I think that you're you're dealing with an owner who uh, is learning how to be an owner right now. Mm-hmm. And I think that the result from the Panthers did not match 
anywhere near what the expectation was, but I don't think that Frank Reich was the right situation. He wasn't the right quarter, or not, like, well, he was a quarterback, but he wasn't the right coach to turn around that program. Um, it's, I know a few things about Frank Reich teams, and they looked a lot like Frank Reich teams in Indianapolis. Uh, and and I, you know, it, on paper, it makes sense bringing the quarterback, get him to be his tutor, but and give him an open checkbook to to fill out this staff. And it just did not work out. I think that uh, your general manager also needs to be held to account for this because that roster is not a great one. And uh, I'm not surprised that that happened. This is something that I think Jimmy Haslam would have done ten years ago in Cleveland. So it's a, a new owner, a relatively new owner who is out of patience. So we'll see. We'll see what happens in Carolina. Nick, thanks, bud. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Nick Shook from NFL.com here on the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Okay, one final hour to come. Uh, Kevin Woodley, NHL.com and Ingle Magazine is going to join us. And then we'll do what we learned from the humanoids. What did you learn over the last 72 hours in sports? Let us know. Dunbar Lumber text line is 650-650. You are listening to the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650.